Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. We have a very special guest this week. We had him last week as well. It is the second part of the two-part Michael Silverblatt interview. The bookworm is back from his perch. Can a worm be on a perch? I'm mixing metaphors all over the place. It's possible. They loved him on KCRW. We love him at KPFK. Let's talk to Michael Silverblatt again. But first, I need to say hello to my co-hosts, Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. Hey, guys. Hey, Seth. The Bookworm is Back is a, is a Springsteen song, isn't it? The Bookworm is Back is a Springsteen song in, uh, I believe it's a deep cut on the River album. You know, one of the things that when we, when I told people that we were going to be interviewing you, uh, one of the things that people said was, I want to know how the hell he reads all of that. And how many books can you read at once, or do you just read Oh, one no, no. Books? I never read more than one book at the same time. That would confuse me. Mm-hmm. Here's what it is. I read late at night. It's so quiet. The rate at which I read in that silence when the phone doesn't ring, when I'm not tempted to take care of any other matter, my reading rate zooms up. And I wake up in the morning, not knowing how, but I've read 120 pages. My theory about reading is that when you sit down to read a book, you shouldn't get up until you've read 100 pages. Then you're committed to really reading the book. After a hundred pages, I'll go and get something to eat. I don't cook for myself, so when I'm in my apartment, I'm reading. When I'm out of my apartment, I'm eating. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that's pretty much it. That's the the um, life. (laughs) No, there are some other secrets. I've seen you reading and eating at the same time at a restaurant. I have done that. (laughs) Probably at Angelini. Yes, it was. Which is my favorite restaurant. But... Let me tell you how this is done. You get the books, this is May, as we speak. The books for May came to me usually in March, some of them before, some of them a bit after. All I'm doing, there'll be four shows in May. I'm reading to look for four books that will be interesting to me and to my audience. When I have four books, it's time to stop the generalized reading and start preparing the shows. I will kind of be sure if each of the four writers I've chosen has written 16 books, that's not going to be possible. So I want at least one writer in that mix who's written only two books (laughs) and maybe one poet because poetry books, although you have to read deep, you can read quickly. And right now we're in trouble. Like, I'm very interested in reading Josh Cohn's new book, Joshua Cohn, but it's around 650 pages, and he's not easy. Coming up, the new Franzen, around 800 pages. The difficulty for me is that I would rather be reading a mixture 
I've never read Henry Fielding's book called Amelia. Mm -hmm. I would like to read that. Yeah. And I don't have the time to. I don't have the time to read the things by Stendhal that I never read. If there are things I haven't read by Colette, chances are they're each under 200 pages. I have enough time to dally mm. with Colette. Will you ever bail when you're reading a book? You get 50 pages in, say, and the joke, this just isn't for me? Not usually, not very much, because I have that rule of reading 100 pages, but I do bail after 100. And have you ever wanted to bail in the middle of an interview? <laughs> Interesting question, but I... Oh, yeah, that, that, that... But only once or twice. And not this one. No. <laughs> not a, I'm, having a, I'm having a rather good time. I hope you are, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a writer whose work I like very, very much, Mary Gateskill, had told people that she'd been a call girl when her first book, a book of stories called Bad Behavior, came out. Mm-hmm. And so she'd gotten herself in a bad situation because every time she gave an interview, they didn't want to talk about her book. After all, they hadn't read the book. So they wanted to ask her about being a call girl. About bad behavior. Yeah. About bad behavior. <sighs> There's some very bad behaviors in her books. In fact, they make me cry. And I said to her, Mary, you know, until the recent novel that had a woman's name as the title, I can't remember it, none of the characters were anything like me. There were no faint hearts or gentle people. They were all kind of ferocious, fashionable, and really sexually dark. And I said, the, it's not that... I don't know these people exist. I do know. The absence of someone like me among them is what frightens me. Did they kill off my kind? <laughs> do you not know anyone like me? And she said, oh, no, no, you, you've, you've got it. My characters terrify me, too. I'm crying with you at the margins of the page. And that was when I began to understand... Mary Gateskill, that for her, sentimentality would mean putting people of sensibility. There are no advice-giving characters in her work, and as a result, you feel very much, what's that Oscar Wilde phrase? Feasting with panthers. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but since that time on, when Mary and I do an interview and we talk about Chekhov and what a woman feels after her baby is killed and she's running through the field and we don't hear any sound, Mary told me she figured it out. It's because the woman is screaming and she can't hear anything around her. The wind is blowing in the trees, but her scream is louder than the wind. And by the time we're finished talking... We're both crying. And that's the depth at which I would like the interview to occur. I don't think anyone but Mary has ever said about that Chekhov story in the ravine that when the baby dies, that the woman running away through the woods 
is uttering an inhuman shriek, a wail. It's Benji's wail in uh, The Sound and the Fury. (laughs) That's interesting. I hear that the elevator repair project is doing the Benji section again Mm -hmm. in New York, and I'd love to go there and see it. I, I love especially that section of Sound and the Fury. The most unbearable is... What's the name of the guy who tears up the circus tickets? Jason. Oh, did that make me want to die? Yeah. Oh, it was horrible. He's, he's a really horrible, oh, horrible he's a, person. He, but he, he's a sadist for children. Mm. You know, it, it's Benji's yeah. circus tickets, and he's poking them into the flames. And Compson, is that his name? Mm-hmm. He couldn't do anything because he's lost an incestuous longing for his sister who's unavailable to him and he's trying in his section to think of everything but penetrating her. It is so frightening, that book. It really is. Oh, it's terrible. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and we are talking to Michael Silverblatt on KPFK 90.7 FM. That makes me wonder, who are the writers that you wish you could have interviewed? But they were already gone. No, it's more like this. Outside of saying wonderful, wonderful things like writing a novel... It's like building a chicken coop in the middle of a hurricane. I think he said cyclone. Uh, Outside of that, Faulkner never gives an interview in which he reveals anything interesting. That's Um, true. He he really doesn't. I wonder... Even even when they recorded him for that entire year at Virginia, right? Yeah. In that generation... You know who told me this, actually? I didn't know it, but it's true. Joan Didion said to me... She said, most of those writers believed that if they said what they knew, they would lose their gift. It was a form of prophylactic protection not to talk too much about technique. Hmm. If you think about it, it was even stronger in poetry. Poets hated talking about the origins, or worse, the meanings of their poems. Ashbery is still a proponent of that kind of thing. Didion doesn't like to talk about where it comes from. These are throwbacks to a previous generation where writing was a form of magic. Mm. And I often wonder, would I be able to, with my... You may not notice, because you're looking into the air, Tom... But I don't break my gaze when I'm talking to a writer. I learned that trick, and it is a trick, again from Joan Didion, who said that when she was talking to Squeaky Fromm, she went to jail to visit her. Squeaky Fromm was one of the Manson girls. Of course. She brought Squeaky a dress, because a girl in jail doesn't have much to wear. And once she sat down... She sat down and looked at Squeaky and didn't ask any questions. And Squeaky, who hadn't been giving good interviews, got so nervous at Joan Didion's hollow-eyed and neutral gaze that she just started blabbing. And that was a brilliant trick. Mm. And it works better on novelists even than on girl members of gangs. 
Michael, when you're doing your interviews, do you find a qualitative difference between novelists and poets? Oh, God, yes. And what, <laughs> would you elaborate? Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> novelists are accounting for behaviors. Poets are removing the accounts and leaving the surprise so that you have to work your way back from the startling revelation to the initial cause. Then poetry in our own time has even gone further and left only traces. A good deal of the writing going on today, the readers have not yet been born who will know how to read it. It will be a slow process to discover how to read conceptual writing, what to do about flarf. Poetry in general is in a very mysterious interregnum in relation to meaning. And a lot of the people who used to love poetry are angriest. That's one of the excitements of the effect of time upon literature. What lasts is not necessarily what lasts because we understand it. Sometimes what lasts is what confuses us the most. You know, I have this theory of occupations that people are attracted to their own weaknesses, and so people with discipline problems go into the military. <laughs> people with people people who are obnoxious go into sales, um, and people who read a book and don't get it become literary Critics. folk. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. um, the lack of understanding is what drives. Uh, I think you the just career. insulted all of us. Thank you, <laughs> thank you. I, I, I rarely can manage all four at the same time. Uh, Michael, I just wanted. Um, yeah, you oh, said he's staring at you. He's giving you his gaze. He felt bad about staring. I know, I'm off doing, into I'm the, doing this. I was trying to do this. Trying to, you're trying to um, <laughs> to destabilize me. Um, but I've I've spent too much time yeah, on the other side of the microphone. I'll, why, don't, why, don't, why don't you ask a question that will shock the listener and see if I give way to panic. I, I, I don't know if this would shock a listener, but I will say there are people who have a sense that you do not... You've talked about a lot of uh, women writers today, but there are people who claim that you don't spend enough time with women writers, that, you're, that you've got a, a, a boys' club going. That's so interesting. I haven't heard that one. I did get a letter in which there were a tabulation of the white men, the white women, the people of color... Um, gay and straight and religious. I wondered in many cases how the author of this letter knew who was who, but mm -hmm. you know, he presented very interesting statistics. And I wrote back immediately saying, you know, this hasn't always been true, but I see you're right and it embarrasses me. Please know that if you will look again it will take a little bit for me to rectify, to get back on course, but eight months from now, you will no longer have this criticism. After I stopped feeling offended and saying literature has nothing to do with ethnicity, all the things that people were permitted to say in the 70s, I found myself agreeing 
with the things that Claudia Rankine says in the book The Racial Imaginary, every cliché, every terrible image that we have is still living inside. Why didn't I know the writer I talked to two weeks later? Why didn't I know that a great African writer, Ellen Mobanku, was teaching francophone literature at UCLA and had been for some years. Well, I invited him on. His book, which is in the form of a letter to James Baldwin, is a very good book, and I read four or five of his novels in addition. And he's wild, and he's fun, and he's rambunctious. He was a great guest. I spoke to Valeria Guiselli, a uh, Mexican writer mm -hmm. who's been living around the world, I really saw that I wasn't being fair. I was making the assumption, so incorrect, that people were going to be writing ethnic books instead of literary books. Is that so wrong? No, but what's on my show is literary books. There might be, and I keep saying this, a great thriller. I don't cover thrillers on my book. There are other places for that. Why don't I do it? I'll tell you why. When I tried to read more thrillers, it was the period of AIDS, and people were dying all around me. I was going to so many memorial services... I was meeting people, believe it or not, they were wearing dark glasses. And I, being the creature that I am, would go around saying, please don't hide your tears. But I realized when I'd get home to the thrillers, there were so many deaths and only one funeral. Characters would be killed in every chapter but there's only one funeral in the book because funerals are boring to write about and deaths are exciting. But I can't be around death that's not followed by mourning. I want every character who dies unjustly in a thriller to be deeply mourned by someone, a wife, a child, a business associate. Without that, the book stymies me. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and we are talking to Michael Silverblatt on KPFK 90.7 FM. Is there a question that you've always wished somebody would ask you, and at the same time feared that they would ask you? That was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. There was a black part of my life when I was... A drunk and a drug user, and I even lost track of my own identity. And I started to become another person, pretended to be another person. To my great good fortune, now, 30 years later, this person who was the target of my bad behavior agreed to be on my show, and we did two shows together. So I feel that the last of my bad behavior has been atoned for. 
But mm. for those 30 years, I always feared that someone would say, tell us about pretending to be, and I'm not going to name names, not because it would hurt me, but it, because it would be injurious to him. And that was very frightening. Even today, as I was preparing for this interview, as I dressed, I said to myself, remember when, remember those days when being interviewed, you wondered whether they were going to dig up the old dirt? I had a difficulty with my sanity then. But somehow or other... Because my love for literature was real, it was a genuine love, and by now I've been in psychoanalysis for 30 years. I've done the things that needed to be done to understand what was happening to me when I lost track of myself. I'm not ashamed to be vulnerable. What I love is reading I had to practice becoming another person to gain empathy into the characters in books and films. You talked about writers being reluctant to talk about where their inspiration comes from. In talking to you, one of the things that really comes across most strongly is this gift you have for empathy. And I'm wondering where, where does that derive from? My grandma. My grandma Rose lived to be 101. When I was born, she was 61. And she'd come from Russia. My mother was the only one of her children to be born in America, and she lived with us. My mother went to work, my father went to work, and I stayed home with Grandma just Grandma and I till my sister was born. Grandma didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Russian or Yiddish, and yet we spent the entire day talking to one another. And as time went by, although we still didn't understand each other's language, there was no one I felt I understood better in the world. It was all tone of voice. It was all the reflection of the eyes and tears beating in the corner of the eyes. So much expressiveness, and that was where it came from. Also, a phrase that I'll never forget, Hoprachmanus, which means have mercy. A child is merciless, <laughs> and a woman of that age having to deal with a very young child might say, Hoprachmanus. She can't say, you won't, don't understand, you're young and I'm old. I don't have the strength. Hopnisht koich. I don't have the strength. But I learned what I learned about growing old from Grandma Rose, who, if you asked her how she was, she would say, fine, thank God. And then, eventually, as she got older, She'd say, I pull myself around, kretschmich a rim, I crawl around, and she would say, thank God. And that, for me, you know, opens up 
Beckett. <laughs> At least the novels. I remembered Grandma, who'd sit by the window. She sat in two places, by the television and by the window. By the television, it was confusing because she could neither see nor hear. <laughs> so either she'd sit with her head on top of the set, mm. and which meant she could hear, or she'd watch it, which would mean that she could see but couldn't hear. And she liked to watch the newlywed game. And she'd call me down if the couples had answered outrageously. <laughs> My grandmother, who had grown up in the neighborhoods of Brooklyn, this neighborhood was Irish, that neighborhood was Italian, this was a bunch of kikes, us, and um, she'd hear these answers and she'd say, tell me, Michael, is this one Italian? <laughs> 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 Which meant that they were sexually excited and you know, provocative. Um, so there was that sitting place, mm -hmm. but then in the window. And when I was a child in Queens, the sky would darken to the color charcoal and big drops huge half-dollar-sized dollops would fall. And the pain of rain, you know, the, mm. the, it, was a, it was solid wet made of these dollops. And then, within three minutes, four, five, most, they would stop. And the sun would come out bright my grandmother, who by now would have called my sister and I to look, would turn to us and say, You see, God's help can come in a minute. And that's what I had to keep saying to myself, because left to my own devices, it's as mysterious as how I can wake up in the morning having read a 500-page book without remembering turning any pages. I mean, there, there is a mystery in the world that, if you believe in it, always works. The trouble that you make for yourself can clear up. Even the anguish of living in America today, I suspect, could be fixed more quickly than we are willing to believe. We could make it a better place. We could. And we'd be in agreement about so many things, even though at the moment we love to disagree. One of the reasons that I love doing my book show, which is called Bookworm, and which airs on my beloved station KCRW, which they've given me for 25 years, is that in those 25 years, I've never gotten that kind of hostile argumentative emailing only when Harold Bloom is on he says something mean about Harry Potter then, then they all come out to play well thank you Michael Silverblatt um, uh, for, for all the recruiting you do and uh, and I think we all want to be adopted by you I think I, I can, I can, can oh. you take us home <laughs> new come Manson, home with me new Manson family is being formed <laughs> 
For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, my name is Seth Greenland, and you have been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported L.A. Review of Books. Our thanks, as always, to Jerry Gorin, our producer and moral center, the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation, who uh, give us the money that allows us to keep this thing afloat, and to you for listening. Go to iTunes, download us, give us a rating. See you next week.